Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, political propaganda, press pad and Prince Andrew Plus. Jeremy Clarkson suddenly wakes up to climate change just in time for his new TV show. And in the Media Quiz, we say farewell to broadcasting legends Clive James and Gary Rhodes. It's all to come in today's Media Podcast. And joining me today, Chair of the Broadcasting Press Guild, Jake Cantor. Hello, Jake. Hello. Uh, You have a new job since we last saw you. You are International Editor of Deadline Hollywood. I expect you knew that. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Otherwise, something's gone horribly wrong. I wasn't sure if this was me announcing it for the first time. (laughs) Uh, That's exciting. Yes, it is exciting. I'm I'm kind of back in the world of TV after uh, three years at Business Insider. Um, And obviously, I used to work at Broadcast, so... um, yeah, it's it's fun to be covering the media again. And I guess like it used to be if you had that job in London and you were writing about US productions or you were writing about British productions for a US audience, there would be a clear transatlantic divide there. But nowadays, I mean, all that American money is going into things that are being filmed at Elstree and Pinewood and wherever, isn't it? Well, it's extraordinary these days. And you're writing about a Netflix commission that could just as easily be here in London as it could in you know Hollywood. And uh, the money that's flowing into the UK from these major companies is extraordinary. And it's a great time to be writing about telly. And a lot of those British TV commissioners you used to write about now work for the American tech companies as well. Yeah, yeah well, if you look at someone like Anne Mensah, who now uh, has gone from Sky to Netflix, uh, and you know, there are many other examples. Um, you know, the sweet spot for us is always the intersection between the US and the UK. And um, you know, luckily, I'm, I'm writing in that sweet spot. See how he says us, Liz. He's already he's already yeah, a team player. He's going over. He's only been there a flash in the pan. Uh, also joining us, Professor Emeritus at City University's Department of Journalism, Liz Howells, back on the show. Hello, Liz. Hello. Um, you wanted to say a few words about Richard Lindley, who passed yes, away this I week. Yes, I did. Um, I think, you know, it's really exciting looking to the future, but looking to the past is quite informative too. And Richard Lindley was a great reporter in the sort of golden age of those charming and glamorous young men who went around the world telling us what was going on. He was a great reporter. But it's really Carol Stone I want to talk about, who was Richard's wife. And they were a really interesting love match, you know, for a media love match. They, uh, I think, met at the Edinburgh Television Festival relatively late in life and they were quite different. Um, Carol was a great networker, is a great networker. She's incredibly gregarious and great fun. Richard, a little bit more aloof, perhaps a little posh even. But they got together and uh, they were a great couple. 
sadly, Richard suffered from dementia later on and Carol looked after him and she was absolutely wonderful and I saw them both at a party in the summer and I thought how great it was to see someone with dementia and someone looking after them and them both having a great time at this party. But sadly, they were involved in a road accident a couple of weeks ago in Soho and then uh, Richard was in hospital, as was Carol, and he died. And I think she must be devastated and a lot of us of the older generation, say, and perhaps the younger generation too, our hearts go out to them because... As I say, they were a real love story, a media love story. Lovely. Thank you for that, Liz. Um, And last but not least, veteran media pod commentator Paul Robinson, director of Creative Media Partners, always flying in from somewhere. Yes. Where um, this time? I try to keep the airline cards nice and gold rather than going a horrible blue colour. So I've just come back from Russia, actually. Very interesting. I was invited to speak at the St. Petersburg Cultural Festival. This is a festival promoted by uh, President Putin and designed to encourage people to invest in Russia. And uh, it was fascinating. I mean, some very interesting performances, but the whole purpose really was to get people to think about how they could work with the Russian producers and do Russian co-production. And what they did was they announced, in fact, at this festival, a 40% tax credit on production done in Russia. So uh, it was conversations with Russian studios, linking them with Western companies to find ways to get uh, kids' animation into Russia and then to produce a a show that will work around the globe. You know, Masha and the Bear people know, but it was an accident. It wasn't designed to be a global show. There's never really been a Russian animation that's travelled around the world and they want to do that. So this was about promoting that and um, paid for by the Russian government. So that's all good. And is the idea for international companies to think, oh, we, we, we want to do something that feels culturally like it could be done with a Russian company? Or is the idea more like the tax breaks in Belfast or, you know, Detroit or wherever, where you just go and make something there and no one really knows it's a Russian co-production? Well, I mean, cultural references are important, but for kids anyway, to make something successful, it's got to have a global appropriateness. You need to tap into stories and things that kids care about globally. The Russians know they're not very good at that. They're very good at physical animation. Their production is fantastic, but their story writing, their character design, not as good. And they've recognised that if they're going to export Russian creativity to the rest of the world, they've got to tap into some global storytellers and work with you know British or American writers, showrunners, to produce a show that will travel. Okay, so Pepper Pigsky coming soon. <laughs> Absolutely, definitely on the way. Uh, right, sorry to do this to you all, but you may have noticed there is an election going on um, and there is some shit going down which we need to discuss. So <laughs> I don't even know where to start, but my script says let's start with the Lib Dems and NewsQuest boss Toby Granville this week threatening to boycott coverage of the Liberal Democrats in his newspapers after the party published their own free sheets that looked like local papers. Have any of you seen the examples of this that people took pictures and put them online? Jake, you're nodding. Do you agree? Do you think these things, the Mid-Hampshire Gazette and the North West Leeds and Wharfdale News, if that landed on your doormat, would you believe that wasn't a political pamphlet but was a genuine local paper? Um, I I hope not. I hope I'm a media savvy um, person having uh, appeared on the media podcast a number of times. But I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't think this was new. I, I think this is an old trick that's been used by other political parties in the past. Um, I mean, it's insidious, misleading, dangerous. But um, I kind of look at these things these days and kind of shrug my shoulders. Uh, it all feels a bit parochial, well, I it, think. It has because, been going on forever. Yeah, it has been going on forever. And this is kind of peculiarly British thing, isn't it? Um, and when you look at you know, a world in which Donald Trump's got this enormous me- megaphone in which he lies 
to 70 million people at once, a little newspaper, fake newspaper going through someone's door doesn't feel I don't know I don't I, maybe maybe I'm being too fast I and think loose that's a really bad attitude Jake I mean just because there are bigger lies doesn't mean that a small lie <laughs> I is don't a, is agree a good with it thing. don't get me wrong and it's you know ever so slightly patronizing but is it, it the most dangerous thing that's happening in this election well, there's I lots of dangerous so. things that are happening but I think it's really useful that this has been flagged up and it, it's fascinating because in a lot of areas local authorities run newspapers that look like a, a, a genuine newspaper and they're actually you know the local councils mm. and organ of of, uh, communications and I think it's really important that people have their attention drawn to this and people do read local newspapers I mean perhaps not as they once did but particularly if they come through the door for free and it's really I think quite dangerous when a political party pretends to be something it's not it is not the publisher of an independent newspaper it does actually show the power of local journalism, though, doesn't it? That people want it to be real. Isn't it interesting? I mean, you know, it's all, we're always told that local media is dying, and I don't personally believe that's necessarily true. It's probably mutating in some way. And, and this is an interesting example of how it is mutating and how it still does matter. Whether or not it's wise of Tony Grenville to say that he will not cover the Lib Dems in his papers is another issue. I mean, I think that's probably shooting yourself in the foot. But it's interesting that it matters enough to have hit the headlines. It's also the thing of, I mean, if the, if the newspapers had actually been called Lib Dem News, Paul, then everyone would understand it's a pamphlet that's a spoof of a local paper. We get what that is. It's the fact that they tried to make it look like the genuine article. Liberal Democrats was written in very small letters. That's what feels insidious and unpleasant about it these days. People have always done it, but now, especially a party that's highlighted fake news, it feels hypocritical. It does, but I would draw a distinction and I would sort of um, draw a parallel too, and that is, you know, when you're communicating with anybody, you need to know what the source of that is. And another example would be, when is it editorial and when is it advertising? And that's always been something, I think, in the UK, we've been pretty good at differentiating. So you know when it's an advert, you know when it's editorial. This is clearly misleading. They're not the only political party to do things that perhaps are uh, not completely uh, whiter than white. But I do think what's interesting is it demonstrates that this election is being fought at a local level. There's going to be a lot of tactical voting. What happens in local constituencies is what matters. You know, whatever the swing may be nationally, what happens locally may be driven by other factors and therefore local papers are very important. So I think it is quite encouraging for local journalism, but I do think it's very clear that we call this out. And actually the thing that's changed, not since the last election, because we've had social media for a while now, obviously, but perhaps since the last decade, is that when people get stuff sent through their door that's locally targeted at them, or when people actually get a Facebook ad even that's locally targeted at them, they can share screen grabs of it with everybody else. It's no longer something that's just for their eyes only. Everyone can see when the parties are lying. Yeah, I mean, the, the best example, I think, of that this election is the Tories... Uh, rebranding their Twitter account as Fact Check UK or whatever let's, it was. Let's have a little rant about that, everybody. I'm going to try and hold my feelings on this because I really could fill an hour, but, but let's talk about that. I think it's really interesting and the whole fake news and, and if somebody calls something Fact Check and they're clearly, um, from a, a prejudice point of view, like a political party, you, ne you need to know about that and you need to be clear about it. But that sort of thing has always gone on and the whole idea that fake news is something modern and um, completely, um, you know, of, of the moment is so wrong. There's always been fake news, right You know, right back to the Middle Ages when um, people believed all sorts of things about saints and went on pilgrimages and so on. I'm not saying it was necessarily untrue, but there's always an element of doubt about these things and, and people were pr promulgating things that possibly weren't true. It's always happened. But hold so 
point... that was Jake's argument about the leaflets. He said no, that had always gone on and you said that doesn't make it no, right. No, but what he said was that it didn't matter because it had always gone on. Oh, I didn't on. say that, I don't think. Well, you did sort of <laughs> demean the local side of it, Jake. What's different about this bit. social media thing, though, is the fact that they were pretending to be an impartial fact-checking service. It's not just even a case of removing the conservative branding and mm. saying didn't Boris Johnson do well but actually trying to oh, appear yeah, to be Oh yeah I agree with you it's not good absolutely not not trying good. to appear to be an impartial journalistic organ that's straight out the Donald Trump playbook isn't it But you and mustn't under- you mustn't it. underestimate the savviness of the of the public when this thing happens Well I think that's the point I mean I hope that people will actually uh, react accordingly and judge people on the ability to trust what they read I hope that people who are actually doing uh, such activity and and misleading the public will actually ultimately pay the price because they won't be rewarded uh, by support. You know, I do think the public are not stupid. It's important they're aware. And if people are cheating, then they should have the consequences um, uh, paid. And that will ultimately be via the ballot box. I mean, there was an interesting poll this week that showed that... um, of the most memorable events of this election so far, I think 9% recognise that fact-check mm. snafu or issue. Mm. Um, and that was right up there with people remembering what was in the contents of the uh, uh, of the various manifestos. So it, 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 people recognised that that was an issue, I think. It wasn't just in a Twitter bubble, that, that mm. thing. But it's just whether they remember it with disgust or whether they remember it in the terms that the Conservative Party wanted it to be remembered, i.e. they remember that people took issue with what Jeremy Corbyn said in the debate. It will depend where they're coming from in the first place, I think. And that's really, really important because it's the reason people buy various newspapers because they already belong to that particular tribe. And they want to reinforce their own particular views. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it a bit weird that the Electoral Commission gets to sort of adjudicate on all of this stuff rather than the Advertising Standards Authority or, you know, or individual social media companies seem to make up their own rules... It all seems a bit flimsy for something that's the most important part of our democracy, that's advertising really, political party. That's really interesting you should say that because regulation and statutory coverage doesn't extend to social media and it will in the future. It's going to have to happen. Ofcom or somebody is going to have to take a view on this. At the moment we're in this transitional period but it will change. Should we talk about John Sweeney as well? Uh, I don't know if you saw the open letter that he sent to Ofcom. I mean, it was it was sent as a whistleblowing letter, but then he published it on his website, uh, accusing the BBC of failing to broadcast mostly his reports on, quote, the far right Russia and Brexit. Do you think the BBC have a case to answer here? I think it's got to be looked at because every whistleblower has a point. That's why they're blowing the whistle. There, there are some interesting things in this. For example, um, a programme about the Maltese journalist Daphne Caruana Galicia, I think that's how you pronounce it, was axed. But then I noticed yesterday on the BBC News there was quite a long piece about um, Malti, the, the, the problems in Malta. And I thought, how interesting. I'd never seen that before. And I was interested in this because I know one or two Maltese journalists through my work. And I was really sort of surprised to see this flagged up on the BBC. And then I find that, oops, a whistleblower said they axed a show about it. So, mm, I don't know, it's interesting, isn't it? Mm. That suddenly it's up there on the news. He names specific examples and specific journalists. One of the things he says is that John Sopel shouldn't be doing corporate work for, I think it was Philip Morris, um, and that he named another one as well. Was it uh, Justin Webb from the Today programme, also doing corporate work for one of the companies that I think Panorama were looking into? Mm. Is is that right, that high-profile BBC presenters, if, especially if they're freelance, shouldn't be taking corporate gigs? I mean, that's the implication, because... Any corporation you work for is going to have some dark part of their history. I think that's pretty dangerous. I think that perhaps you've got to look at the terms of the contract. Um, they have got to be able to have the freedom to do other work. I wouldn't like to opine on it further than that, but it does, as you say, start to sound like sour grapes when it gets so personal. 
But what do you think, Jake? If you work in news, because that's his point, isn't it? He's not saying that if, you know, Claudia Winkleman can't present something for Philip Morris. He's saying if you are the North America editor, you shouldn't be taking money from one of the biggest companies in the world that might be at the centre of the stories you're reporting. Is that a fair point or, or not? I mean, clearly their contracts allow them to do this work. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. I think if I was in their position, I would think seriously about whether taking on work like that would compromise my judgment. And if uh, John Sobel has to report on a major White House scandal or American scandal, because he's a North American editor, involving that huge company in the US, then does that colour his reporting? That's a question. That's not me suggesting that it does, but... Uh, it certainly doesn't help his reporting, I don't think. I guess there's the thing as well of salaries, because, you know, we've we've talked many times on this show about what everyone gets paid as uh, on-screen talent for the BBC, but we haven't really factored in before. It's not been part of the story before to consider what their position at the BBC gets them in corporate terms. I think what's important is that we expect a BBC journalist to be impartial and to tell it straight and not to be influenced by any other paid remuneration. Um, I think, you know, in any business, uh, you have to avoid conflict of interest. Mm. Uh, it's absolutely critical that you do that and And as a consultant, you have to think very carefully. If I work for this company, is it going to cause a conflict with that company? Is it going to change my decision-making? Ultimately, if you're paid by somebody, it is going to change at least how you think. And that's a risk. So at best, it's a perception issue. But it probably means, in reality, you do act in a somewhat different way. So I think it's important that BBC journalists are completely beyond reproach uh, and can be trusted. Now, if that means they're to be denied doing this work, um, either it's got to be in an area where there's no risk risk of any conflict with their news reporting, or they're going to have to be paid a different salary to enable them to work for the BBC exclusively and not take this work on. I might be being a bit too optimistic, but I cannot imagine that the BBC would allow them to take a post with another company which is going to cause a conflict of interest. This must be examined, even if it's just in their yearly appraisal. Exactly. It needs to be examined. I agree with you, Liz. I don't think it does happen, or at least it's probably at the margins. And overall, I would say I think the BBC generally gets it right. I mean, the fact there's been criticism in this election campaign from both the left Mm. and the right, that it's biased the other way... Mm gives me some sense that probably they're getting it about right. And does that extend to party invitations, do you think? That's another one of his uh, accusations. John Sweeney said, Amarajan shouldn't have accepted an invitation to Lebedev's party. You know, I used to... um, I used to work for him. What's wrong with going to his party? But interestingly, somebody I worked with up in the north of England years and years ago, probably 40 years ago, we were invited to a a lot of parties by uh, British Nuclear Fuels. And I was a bit, you know, conflicted about whether we should go. And this chap said, let's go. It's only bribery if it were. Works. And that's the difference, isn't it? You can go to the party, but it's only bribery if it works. Mm. I suppose, I mean, it's how PR works, though, is that it kind of does work, isn't it? I mean, it, even if you unintentionally end up saying a brand's name because, you know, they've paid for you to have a goodie bag, I they're think, in your head. Well, you've got to be very careful. And, you know, as you go up the greasy pole, you do less of that, I suppose. It's, it's a difficult one. But how prescriptive can you be about what people do? We are all influenced by things all the time. The schools we went to, the people we knew, the backgrounds we have. I'm not saying that people should take vast amounts of money from a corporation and then favourably report on it. Of course not. But there's a point at which you cannot edit out all our backgrounds. OK, sticking with Newsnight for a brief moment, we should just touch on the interview that Emily Maitlist did with Prince Andrew over his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. It was on telly, I think, the day after we recorded the last edition of this show and obviously made some waves. Um, <laughs> who would like to go first on this? Well, I think well, we were just talking about John Sweeney and him talking about the BBC perhaps not being as strong as it should be when reporting the news and um, risk-adverse. I think this is a smart... Uh, the BBC 
raise this this exact point in their response to John Sweeney by saying, "Hang on a minute, look at look at this story we did on Prince Andrew. Look at the interview we did. Um, you know, it's not every day that Britain's national broadcaster rugby tackles the Queen's son mm. out of his royal duties. Um, it's a, a, a once a, yeah a once in a lifetime story for Emily Maitlis. It will clean up at every single awards. I think." She was amazing, wasn't she? Brilliantly forensic, didn't let go of the story, etc., etc. I don't know, though, that she knew what she had when she had it at first. It might be that she just didn't want to reveal the contents. But I remember her teasing the story on Newsnight the night before it was broadcast and on the Today programme as well, and she said something very flimsy like, oh, you've you've never seen a member of the royal family open up like this before and people will make up their own minds. It didn't feel like she knew she had an interview that was going to bring his career down. It was because it was the reaction from the papers that that really clinched it. I mean, it was a great interview, very interesting. He was quite downbeat during the whole thing. I think it was the waves that were caused by the red tops that that created this huge brouhaha. How, How long do you think they worked on it, Paul? Well, you have to give a lot of credit to the production team because I'm amazed they were able to pull this off. I would have thought the palace would have said, uh, well, either not gone to Emily Maitlis and Newsnight, I would definitely not have gone to that particular outlet. I think there's all sorts of places you could have gone to for that interview. You'd go to Philip Schofield, wouldn't you? Well, you go to a sofa show where it's a softer thing or you do it in the US rather than doing it in the UK. Ten minutes. But (laughs) going to that show, they clearly didn't know Emily and and her her calm, intelligent, as you say, forensic style, which was always going to um, unravel him. So I'm amazed they allowed that to happen. And I mean, had it been pitched differently, you know, we can talk about this, but also other things, he wouldn't have been subject to the scrutiny he was under, and he was always going to fail. So I think it's a major failing by the palace. And I'm amazed, having had in the past all sorts of other faux pas, you know, the one that sort of springs to mind is the Martin Bashir Princess Diana one, they allowed this to happen. There was also that bit at the end, weirdly, people haven't talked about this, obviously, because there are many other things to discuss, but just thinking back on it, where he tried to publicise Pitch at the Palace, his uh, incentive that he did with startups coming round, which has now sort of fallen around him. And it was really unclear what it was he was talking about because it, it was clearly the case that his people had said, look, ask him a question about that. It felt so out of whack with everything else they'd been discussing. And obviously no one said, look, we need to start by talking about this or we need to talk about all the great work he does. It was just quite amateurishly handled that bit of it. You know, if you were if you were Prince Andrew's PR, even in the context of having agreed to the interview. The whole thing was really interesting because um, Emily Maitlis did a piece for the Sunday Times, I think it was, or was it the Sunday Telegraph? I can't remember which paper it was, but she did a very good, oh, maybe the Saturday Times, um, look at how the, the whole thing was put together. And she explained how they'd started months and months ago, nearly a year ago, if not more, trying to get this particular interview and they'd worked on it and it had gone away and it had come back and the producer had gone back and all the rest of it. So it was really absolutely down to that programme and that team who made that approach. It wasn't that the palace was looking for somewhere and landed on Newsnight. It was Newsnight who'd gone for it from the very beginning and I think that's really interesting. And um, probably that's why the Paris Palace fell into the trap because months later they thought we need, you know, have an, uh, an outing for Prince Andrew where he can explain himself. And there was this invitation lying in the, you know, All inbox. Credit to the production team. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. So definitely credit to them. Okay, we'll be back with some more media news after this. We're going to be talking about Clarkson. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. 
From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Spiritland Studios are run by Spiritland Productions, providers of professional audio solutions to TV, radio and online. As well as their excellent broadcast standard studio facilities like the one I'm in now, Spiritland Productions also has a world-class OB vehicle for audio and video projects of any scale. Whether it's podcasting, outside broadcasting or live concert recording, produce your next show with Spiritland Productions. Go to spiritlandproductions.com now. Welcome back to the Media Podcast. My guests, Jake, Liz and Paul, are still with me. Let's uh, sail across the pond now because the former New York mayor and media billionaire, Michael Bloomberg, has kicked off his presidential run for the Democrats this week by banning his own media company from investigating his campaign. Uh, Jake, would you like to pray see this one for us? (laughs) I mean, he's basically said that Bloomberg can't be involved in any investigations into himself. And uh, I think Bloomberg will cover the sort of day-to-day uh, ins and outs of the election push and um And they'll polls. cover other media outlets who are reporting on Michael Bloomberg, but they won't be... Even though they will be able to investigate Donald Trump, they won't be able to investigate him. That, I mean, that was certainly what I read. Um, it's all a bit but, North Korea, isn't it? I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, and particularly at a time when... My my former employer, which is uh, Business Insider, uh, they published a report yesterday uh, looking at court records going back about twenty years, which raised serious questions about Bloomberg's behaviour. Um, yeah, he's been accused repeatedly in court records of making crude remarks to female employees. Uh, you know, there's clearly room for investigative work as far as his track record is concerned. And there are journalists at Bloomberg who absolutely would be jumping at the bit to do that kind of work, aren't Absolutely. There? What's extraordinary about the naivety of this is how he emails 2,700 people. I mean, if you're going to attempt to try and, you know, muzzle your own people, you might do it in a more subtle way, but to send out <laughs> 2,700 messages, this is inevitably going to the public domain. I mean, I think it's absolutely um, arrogant and naive. And of course, it plays perfectly to Donald Trump. No one could be happier now than Donald Trump. Why? What's the what's the play that Trump's going to make hay with here? Well, well, Trump is always saying, isn't he, how the media have got him wrong, they don't understand him and so on. And, and look, here's his rival doing exactly the same or worse. Yeah, and actually, I mean, CNN's fake news, isn't it, from the Trump camp? 
we, Mike, Mike Bloomberg has, has now managed to make Bloomberg on the list of fake news providers, which the president's going to be calling out. That doesn't leave many impartial news agencies left. And the really sad thing is, look, in any democracy, you want to have a range of options to vote for. You need to have, you know, choices to make. And uh, suddenly the choices have been somewhat damaged. Everyone was hoping there'd be, you know, a, a serious contender you know, next time the elections come around in the US. And of course, this is actually damaging that chance. I, I think we're making the mistake of looking at this as British people, not as American people. This absolutely makes the difference between the way British election coverage is run, which is organised by statute, representation of the people, all of that sort of thing, and, and American election coverage is run. American media is much more the product of individual people putting their money where they want it to be, having their outlet, saying what they want to say, not being regulated in the same way that we are. And Bloomberg is just a, a man of that type. He's bought his channel, he's set it up, he wants to say what he wants to say on it. I think in a radio interview in Iowa, he said, well, of course I don't want my channel, basically slagging me off. We, we've got to look at it from their point of view. They have a completely different media landscape. And I don't also, know if- of course, we elect a person, we don't elect a party. I mean, we you know people keep talking about, you know, the leaders of the parties in the UK. We're not electing one of those leaders, we're electing a party. It's so different. I don't know if Jake would agree because you're probably much more au fait with what's going on in the US, but it is a very different setup, isn't it? It is. Uh, the thing that staggers me about all of this is that Bloomberg has been built into a fantastic news brand, impartial, responsible some, for some amazing journalism, and this diminishes and undermines all of that. But only in our eyes, maybe not in the eyes maybe. of the US. Well, I suppose to, to play it... In his view, what he's saying is there's obviously a conflict of interest because I own the agency. So why, let's not pretend. Yeah, that absolutely. They can be impartial. Let's tell They'll you know all those everyone millions. else apart from me. Let's send everybody <laughs> an email because you know in the US you own a channel. It's your channel. You say what you want on it. Is this story being reported in the US? Will anyone in the US know about this? Or will they care? Yes, it's probably the other. But you know, I mean, there's. I've seen quotes from insiders at Bloomberg who are clearly seething about this. There's been a complaint yeah. from a, from yeah. a union representing journalists yeah. at the Bloomberg Industry Group. I'm not saying it's good journalism or good for journalism. I'm saying their journalism is different from our journalism and we have to look at it differently. And critically, how do US citizens react to this? They may judge it differently to how They'd we say, judge yeah, it. they say, yeah, of course it's his channel. He should say what he wants on it. Well, I mean, is the average US citizen reading Bloomberg? But well, know that's a really it. good point, Jake. But, that's no, a really good point. Yeah. But they know about Bloomberg and they know of it. And when you talk about it, it's um, it's unprejudiced coverage and so on. It's very much in the financial realm. And I think most US people would say, fine. I mean, to be fair, if he actually becomes president, then like Trump's company was supposedly hived off to people outside of his influence, then some of them related to him, uh, then uh, Bloomberg would have to be sold or Mike Bloomberg would have to stand down from the board or whatever. But the point is, during the campaign, I mean, he's managed to enter the campaign with the most expensive series of political adverts of all time funded that's, by himself. That's absolutely fascinating. I find that more interesting in a way than him saying, I mean, I'm not surprised he said this to his employees. But the amount of money that's being poured in, this fascinates me. I really, I just don't know which way it's going to go. It's it, like versus like, isn't it? And it, well, is it a pre-shadow of what might happen with the likes of Bezos owning the Washington Post, Zuckerberg, if he chooses to run for president? I mean, you've actually got, basically, if it's going to be a world where only billionaires can stand to be the most important But it is in the, the US. World, What's that's new? That's how it is. But, that's always been the case. But, but now they can control the message entirely as well. No, not entirely. There are other channels. It's the US. It's different from us. We have our system, and I, and I hope you, believe our system is better. But it's our system with a different history. 
they do it their way. And remember also in the US, people aren't really worried so much about commercial involvement. I mean, you look at the, you know, American TV and, you know, very blatant commercial activity influencing behaviour is not something people have any problem with. They're far more worried about, you know, sex on the TV, whereas here we'd maybe have the other view. Okay, let's talk about Jeremy Clarkson now. Uh, You may have thought he'd just disappeared behind an extortionate paywall, but he's back to blame climate change activist Greta Thunberg for ruining car shows like his one for Amazon Prime. Who saw this story? I think we all did. I saw it. I've seen the show as well. Go on. You sound like a good person to uh, tell us about it. Jake, are you a young person? (laughs) So there's an East Asian set episode of the Grand Tour. Yes. They're in Cambodia and Vietnam. Uh, They're basically journeying the the Mekong River. And um, they start at a... This is where I get the pronunciation wrong, but it's Tonle Sap Lake in Cambodia, I think. And... um, Basically, there's nowhere near enough water in this lake. And that's down to two things. One, uh, <laughs> one the Chinese d- damming and uh, reducing the water supply. And uh, secondly, climate change. And, and I think that's the most important factor in this. And it is the first time that Clarkson and his crew have acknowledged climate change on screen. So the quote that I gave about Greta Thunberg's ruined car shows, that's Clarkson talking in his usual stirring the pot way. Clarkson absolutely loathes Greta and makes no um, effort to conceal his uh, his displeasure about her. Uh, and he still has those views. But I think, um, importantly in this, he recognises for the first time on screen that climate change exists. And um, it's not a big issue. They, 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 they make a nod to it on the show. Um, say this is desperately worrying and they move on very quickly uh, as Andy Willman who's the executive producer he told me afterwards they're not suddenly become David Attenborough No but it's interesting isn't it that obviously they deem that their audience which you know basically is blokes of a certain age who take a, a certain worldview, boomers basically are ready for this piece of information now <laughs> Clarkson says climate change does exist and Alan Rusbridger was was tweeting about this, the ex-editor of The Guardian, saying this is significant, it's important for people like Clarkson and the public eye to make this statement, even in their own way, which might be considered by the Twitterati to be rather insensitive. But is he making a point about climate change or is he having a go at Greta Thunberg, who he obviously doesn't like? Both. It's just, he's doing well, both at the he's same He's doing time, both, but it's mainly this personality thing, isn't it? For me, one of the most interesting things about this story was the fact that I had no idea that Jeremy Clarkson was only 59. I thought he was much older than that. And I thought it was really entertaining when he said that uh, Greta is an idiot for claiming we're all going to die because clearly he's going to die sooner. Well, you know, the probability is at age 59. But as I say, I thought he much was much older than that. Probably sitting in the car all the time isn't great for your skin. Do you think he's, in a small way, trying to appeal to more millennials to get back into the great No, tour? just to be clear, no. No? He could not give more of a damn about millennials. He was pressed on this point when we had a, a press roundtable after the screening. And, yeah, he, he, he doesn't care about upsetting millennials, doesn't care about uh, upsetting Gen Z snowflakes. Uh, all right, well, let's turn our attention to a new crowdfunding initiative which has launched, which is pairing unpaid interns from out of town with media people who have a spare room. 
Paul, the scheme's called PressPad. How does it work? So it works that it offers free places to um, stay. And, and the issue is that um, the Sutton Trust is saying that to have an unpaid internship in London costs more than £1,000 a month. So um, there are people who can't afford it. I think the story slightly confuses two things. There's, there's the issue about diversity and ensuring that there's a proper representation of journalism, uh, journalists reporting stories. And that's obviously right, that it needs to reflect the population as a whole. And then there's the issue about affordability. So I think this is tackling both of those things, people who can't afford otherwise to, to undertake an unpaid internship, and also ensuring we've got diversity and a proper representation. And particularly, you know, this, this statement, in fact, that if you look at the um, proportion of journalists who are from working class backgrounds, there's a very, very low number and way below the, the population average. So um, basically, journalism is still somewhat dominated by, um, you know, middle class, elite and, and Oxbridge, in fact. Yeah, that, that stat's almost got a bit lost over the last 10 years, I feel, Liz, because obviously, for understandable reasons, lots of focus on women and lots of focus on BAME people, but actually not much talk about who hasn't gone to private school. You oh, know, that, that, that's a think, big divide as well. I don't think you're quite right there. I mean, I was in postgraduate education and it was a, a, a constant worry that the applications did not come on, a large number of applications did not come from working class people or northern people who could come to London and yeah, so Yeah, on. but is that what people who are recruiting for independent production companies are thinking about? They, they might be thinking about what colour is their skin and what gender are they and not thinking about what school I think class has become to. more and more something people are talking about. I really do. I, just from my own personal experience of talking to employers, talking to students, it's, it's really up there as something that people are worried about. I think this is a great scheme. I wish I'd thought of it myself. It's so good. And, you know, anything that helps people get into journalism who aren't from the obvious background is really great. That, that doesn't mean, you know, that there's, there's not great people from other backgrounds. It's just the diversity element to make sure there's enough people. And one of the problems with the decline of regional newspaper journalism is that there probably isn't the way in in the regions that there once was through the newspapers like when... I started, I didn't actually work on a newspaper, but a lot of the people I worked with worked on a newspaper. And, it, it, you know, that's one avenue that's closing a little bit. Of course, other avenues through websites and so on are opening. But the, the problem is, and it's always been the case, that the really important influences, um, the big newspapers, national newspapers and so on, are based in London and people work in London and have a London-centric view. And that's the, that is the, the problem with you know, with this election, with everything that's going on, is that we feel that we don't represent the whole country in the way that, that journalism used to do. And also, I think that we've got to rethink this in terms of the election, because as you so rightly said, it's being fought on a very local basis. If there aren't the journalists out there reporting locally, then political parties pretending to be journalists are going to get away with it. It's a really simple idea though, isn't it, Jake? You know, people can't afford to live in London whilst they've got an internship, so give them free accommodation and a mentor in one. I mean, it's a clever, simple thing, but it's, it's a practical step. It's fantastically smart and I think mm. it addresses a huge issue. Um, I think... This is right. I mean, class is increasingly being considered a bigger part of uh, solving these issues. And, you know, I just reflect on my own experience. I was very fortunate to have a parent who works in the industry who was able to ho help open doors for me. And um, I lived not far from London. Um, and those things, I think, probably put me at an immediate advantage that mm. others didn't have. And I think anything that can be done to address that gap would be is, is entirely welcome. But will free accommodation actually, inadvertently perhaps, end up propping up the tradition of unpaid internships? That's a worry because they're, they're, this is not a great thing at all. I mean, I don't think that any unpaid internship should last longer than six weeks. That's my view. And I have seen people in the past horribly exploited, in my view, by very important prestigious companies. And it's all wrong. I do wonder if I could 
give you an anecdote. I've started a, a club for children at my local primary school since I've become semi-retired called the News Club. And these kids are great. They're incredibly diverse backgrounds. Oh, and, they get younger and younger, and don't they, Jay? They're only There's 11. competition coming through. I'll bring them along to the podcast. Anyway, um, I, I gave them lots of copies of local newspapers in the first week. And at the end, I said, would you like to take the newspapers home? And most of the kids said, oh, yeah, thank you. I'd like to take the newspapers home. And one girl said... Uh, no, no, we've got loads of newspapers at home. And I said, oh, that's great. Well done. And she said, yes, it's because we've got rabbits. <laughs> well, at least there's a purpose. <laughs> Absolutely. And you could use the Lib Dem newspaper for that as well, I guess. Paul, are you going to be uh, signing up to host an intern? Well, I mean, you're away I, a lot. You said so. I, I think... <laughs> uh, space in the fridge. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Look, I think interns bring a huge amount to businesses, but I think, you know, Liz made the right point, and that's it's very easy to exploit. Um, certainly in the past, we've had people who then have gone on to get jobs. Um, I think six weeks can often be a little bit short, to be honest, because by the time you get in the door, you know, you've, you've, you've got to get that person comfortable, and, and it's very important that they get real work to do and not just given the sort of the, you know, sit at the desk and read this mm -hmm. or, or go and make the coffee you've got to get really involved so i think actually you need a bit longer than that to really build skills up so i'd argue maybe you know 10 to 12 weeks but i think it's very important unpaid. that this continues what's interesting i think for ten, me 10 to 12 weeks unpaid 10 to 12 weeks as an intern i didn't say unpaid no I mean, that's what i'm asking because that's what we were talking well, about i i would i would hope and and certainly my view would be that after a number of weeks you might start to pay that person because the thing is, actually, the reality is, isn't it, that if you're completely new to this, you don't have contacts, and maybe you're straight out of university or even school, and you, you come to the big smoke, you're probably going to do like five or six internships. So whether they last six weeks or 12 weeks, you need six months. You don't need six weeks. Even if they like you, it might be six months before they can employ you. getting that number of internships is very difficult. I mean, you talk um, to people who can't get internships, who've applied and applied and applied, they've been on a waiting list. There aren't enough internships for that to happen. You know, um, what, what matters is that people get a chance to get into a working environment and then that gives them a, a better chance of competing for a job or maybe getting a job because you found someone really, really good. What I think is interesting is that this crowdfunding fund has worked and that says to me that people are willing to put money mm. in and they, they can see the value in this. Mm. I think that's very, very encouraging. Just actually briefly whilst we're on diversity, Liz, obviously every time you come on the show we catch up on how the uh, oh. <laughs> women monitoring program Yay, that you the set expert up is going. Women yeah. So where, where are we up to at the oh. amount of female presence on the major news um, networks? We, we had some really amazing statistics. Um, I can actually give you an update because we've just had some fresh ones from the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, which show that it's virtually down to two to one in that that means that only twice there are only twice as many men as women and when i started doing this anecdotally about uh eight or nine years ago there were six times as many mm. men as women on shows so i mean it, i don't know whether what's cause and what's effect but you've definitely seen more women being interviewed as authority figures on the tv news than you know than you did a few years ago so yeah it's looking good and I've seen a few kind of high-profile examples as well. You know, two women anchoring breakfast or Good Morning Britain, things like yeah. that. Yeah, let's not be naive about this. There's still a pay gap. There's still, you know, it's still two to one and it's arguable it shouldn't even be that. Um, I would argue that that sort of reflects the level of female authority in society. And that might not be right, but it's, it's realistic. When we started, again, the broadcasters were saying, oh, well, you know, we're just mirroring society. But they weren't. They were actually discriminating discriminating against women. So it's not all bad news, but you've got to keep your foot on the accelerator because if you stop, it goes backwards. OK, let's talk digital media now and reach the parent company of the titles, including The Mirror and The Express and OK magazine these days as well, uh, have claimed a UK first by reaching 40 million unique visitors in a single month. 
it, that's good, right, Jake? I mean, I'm not, I, I always find the unique visitors thing a little bit confusing. But when you're looking at website metrics, that puts them close to the top. For, for a UK publisher, it's good. I mean, I don't know whether that's UK readers or I think that's global readers. Yeah, unique visitors. Um, and it's a, in a month and it's across all their titles. Yeah, I, I, I think they're saying they're the first UK publisher to achieve that. I think that should be celebrated. But my word, the Express and the Star are the clickiest of the clickbait holes on the internet. Um, I, I, I mean, I had a scan of the website today uh, in preparation for this, and some of the headlines are just extraordinary. I mean, things I like... I don't mean to suggest that you don't spend every morning <laughs> checking out the Daily Star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, things like asteroid warning, God of Chaos asteroid may set the world back to prehistoric times. I mean, that was a headline today, I think. The word may in that headline is doing a lot of heavy lifting. But I think... <laughs> What we're increasingly seeing is uh, uh, the debate shifting from one around um, reach and uniques to a conversation around engagement. And that is increasingly becoming a more important metric for publishers. Yeah, I had a look at their websites as well today, particularly the Star and the Express to see what they've done with those since they bought them. And basically, the Daily Star website is almost indistinguishable from the Mirror. I mean, it's just slightly lower end, like you'd expect, but it doesn't have... It doesn't have the sense of fun that the paper does. It doesn't feel that distinct to me. I can't imagine someone repeatedly going back to that website for any particular reason. Well, I mean, they're, they're designed... They're, they're not... Homepages are, are one thing. I mean, they're, they're a kind of dying thing these days. They're, they're still important for the brand, but the way that people land on the Star and the Express website is through social media. Yeah. Um, by finding stories that are going viral on their feeds. Um, I, you know, I think... The Mirror is responsible for a lot of good journalism. I'm not so sure about the Express and the Star. Um, but I, the, the one thing that unites all of these websites is they're all a terrible experience. Mm. Um, they are slow to load the pages. Um, you are bombarded with advertising. You are bombarded with videos. Um, and I struggle to click on their links. I, 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 I try and avoid it because I know... I will not get a good experience. That's interesting. I do that as well. Do you do that anecdotally? Do you do that when you when you want to look for a news story and you search for it? Do you make a decision on which provider you'll click on, not based on the quality of the journalism? Absolutely. But how slick their I website is. I do that is. every single day. Yeah, yeah. I, I must admit, I do that as well. I think the user experience is absolutely critical, as Jake said. It's not just about the story. I think the 40 million reach, in a way, is just a, a bit of a red herring, not least because, you know, News UK are just behind at 38 million and DMGT are just behind at 37 million. Um, reach is a very, very um, rough and basic measure. It doesn't really tell you, as Jake was saying, about engagement. You want to know how long people are on there, you know, um, the extent to which they return. And in fact, for commercial purposes, reach doesn't give you anything at all. What matters is... How long are your consumers on that site? Because that's what you buy. You buy impacts. You don't buy reach. So I think it's a sort of a, a non-story in a way. What's interesting is that, you know, reach um, as a company have been really changing quite dramatically. They've changed their management. They've really been focusing on digital, you know, absolute drive on digital. And I suppose you could argue this is some sort of validation of that strategy. I'm very confused, you know, and I'm sure people listening to this might may well be confused because of reach reaching the reach of you know mm -hmm. it's difficult the, the company's called reach and it's now saying it's got this amazing reach um of unique users but what i don't quite understand is if google sites totaled 49.66 million unique visitors and reach 
the company is getting to 40. I mean, that intuitively doesn't seem quite right to me. I would have thought Google would be huge by comparison. Or am I being naive here? I think they're confusing here UK numbers and non-UK. Oh, I think right. the Google numbers are for the UK, UK and the reach numbers are all territories. So that could be someone Googling Kim Kardashian from Canada. Yeah, so you're not comparing apples with apples. You're not. It's just confusing the way the story's written. And that makes it much less of a story, doesn't it? Because I thought, my goodness, they're up there with it's Facebook It's not really a big story, to be honest. It's yeah. not, it isn't. I mean, well, the other thing to say, in fact, is if you look at it, reaches year-on-year growth is only 10%. I mean, News UK have gone up 30% year-on-year. So, in fact, you continue that trend, News UK are going to overtake Reach next year. This is so impressively forensic, Paul. But only because I've read it and I've been taking notes from Emily. Yeah. It's, it's good that they have a good story to tell, though. Isn't it? People forget it was only last year, wasn't it? They launched that new day. It was that the year before, but recently anyway. And that lasted, what, six weeks or so. So It know. would be helpful, though, even with a good story, if it was an accurate good story and we knew we were comparing apples and apples. This is for the shareholder community, yeah. not for us. Yeah. There is just time for our legendary media quiz. That's the level of excitement we have in the room. Today, <laughs> we... <laughs> no, 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 yeah. um, actually, well, sad news, because it is about the death of a couple of broadcasting veterans who influenced our modern media landscape in more ways than one. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about the TV critic and writer Clive James, who this week lost his battle with leukaemia, uh, and the TV chef Gary Rhodes, who died only aged 59. So I'm going to ask you three questions about the men's lives and work. All you have to do is give me the answer before your opponents. You buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So, Jake, you will say... Jake. Paul, you'll say... Liz. Something else. <laughs> and Liz, you'll say... Paul. No, sorry, Liz. Okay, let's go. What was the title of Gary Rhodes's first full series for the BBC in 1994? Buzzing with your name when you know the answer. I don't know. I mean, he has a very punny name, Clue. Spiky hair. Is it Rhodes Around Britain or something Buzzing like with your name when you know the Jake. answer. <laughs> Roads Around Britain? It was Roads Around Woo-hoo! Britain, yes. Point to Jake. Uh, he went on to present other similar programmes, including Open Roads, <laughs> <laughs> Gary Rhodes' new British classics, uh, and a series of MasterChef, which wasn't a pun on Rhodes. Um, I think we're going to talk a bit about Clive James in a bit more detail, but I, I really think that Gary Rhodes' death is very sad, actually. Aside yeah. from the fact that obviously he's yeah. tragically young, yeah. his impact on TV cookery shows uh, uh, was really well delineated by... Did you see that article by Stuart Heritage in The Guardian about I that? I didn't see that. Oh, OK, well... It, it was was good. Give us the Jake Cantor view. Well, I mean, he, you know, he, he was right at the vanguard of, of TV cookery. I mean, he was the first, the first proper, he was one of the first big hosts of MasterChef before it became really big and done all these individual shows. You know, he was responsible for a big revolution in British cuisine. And um, the, the real sadness about this is that he was about to do his first show in about a decade. Oh, really? Um, for ITV. Um, he was on a break in filming when he died um, and uh, a company called Rock Oyster Media, Media was making the show um, I hope that maybe ITV and uh, Rock Oyster Media can get together and bring some of it to the screen um, I think that would be a really good tribute to him because he's, he's I guess you know people think of him I suppose as being a bit naff the spiky hair and it was a while ago but actually what Stuart Heritage was saying in that piece was the travel log thing was basically ripped off by Rick Stein and the cool young chef dude thing was ripped off by Jamie Oliver and actually almost everything that we see in cookery now that wasn't established by sort of Franny Craddock and Delia Smith was first done by Gary Rhodes. And he's he's brilliant. I was watching some early clips of him uh, yesterday and 
his patter with the audience, the way he engages with the camera, um, the way he talks about what he's preparing, the skill and precision with which he cooks is is utterly engrossing and hypnotic. I thought he was lovely. I was once on the tube and there was a woman opposite me and I think she must have been a relative of his and she'd been to a show or something and she was saying, oh yes, our Gary this, our Gary that. And, and it just sounded so warm and lovely and I thought he came across incredibly well. I agree. Rather take the tube than the roads. That'd be another <laughs> show for him, wouldn't it? Tubes over roads. Gary Gary Cook's on the underground. Uh, okay, here is question number two. What was the title of Clive James's best-known TV review show? I don't know how we're quantifying this. I'm producer Rebecca. Paul, Saturday script. Night Live. It, Saturday Night Clive, Clive, did I hear? Oh, live. No, that's not Clive. what Rebecca, in her fevered imagination, believes is his best-known <laughs> show. Saturday Night Clive. No. Anyone else? Clive James on... TV. Buzzing with your name when you know the answer. Paul, Clive James on TV. Clive James on TV. It, uh, Clive James on television on is what's television. written in my script. <laughs> well, it was called Clive James on TV, actually. It was Clive James on TV, actually. I'll give you the point, Paul. Um, it's all merely a hook You're too for, young, for us to discuss Clive James. Well, I do remember the Sunday night Clive, I suppose mm. it was called, or the Clive James show, whatever it was called in the early 90s. And it was brilliant. Um, I mean, all the Japanese game show stuff, again feels passe now didn't at the time no one had heard of endurance before clive james introduced it it was a revelation we couldn't believe people being humiliated in this way on television he brought that to us for the first time and his writing about tv was just so good well he was just so witty he was just absolutely i mean an unlikely tv star because he's not you know the the best looking tv star you know not an obvious tv person but he just had a wit and a style and he was dry and he took the mickey in a way that was you know acceptable and and fun. I, we, we used to tune in every week and Clive James was de rigueur in our house. I once had to try and book him for a show. A I was re- wondering why you were grimacing. <laughs> a regional ITV show was years he, ago. Was he not that cooperative? Um, well, I don't blame him really because I rang him up by mistake at three o'clock in the morning because <laughs> 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 I didn't realise he was abroad. Oh, you know, it still makes me squirm thinking of doing that to a TV legend. Yeah. Oh, and the thing I love about Clive James is that he understood the power of the medium. He loved TV and uh, knew what it meant to people. And I think that really came across in in the way that he reviewed TV. And possibly as well, I mean, just because he was Australian. Yes, I think that was so important. I, was, I mean, it's a slightly patronising thing to say, but I think because he was Australian, that high culture, low culture thing didn't, didn't matter. Bother him. It was great. He yeah. was happy to be an intellectual and, you know, ogle people on a beach in a travel log. <laughs> um, and that's quite a rare combination, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, question Wait. number three. For, I know it's exciting, Liz. This is your chance to get a point. <gasps> I yeah. might get a point. Yeah. Uh, for which newspaper did Clive James write a TV column between... Clue, not the observer. Between 2011 and 2014. Buzzing with your name when you know the answer. Uh... Jake? Jake. Is it the New York Times? Oh, it isn't the New York Times. The Washington Post. It isn't the Washington Post, although you didn't buzz in with your name. I know, because I knew I was wrong. The rumour was that when the paper got a new editor-in-chief, they sacked him. Daily Telegraph, Paul. Paul, it was the Daily Telegraph. You have won the quiz. Congratulations. That's so impressive, Paul. Um, (laughs) uh, That is it for today. My thanks to my guests, Liz Howell, Paul Robinson and Jake Cantor. If you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast and you want to help us keep doing it, do consider taking out a voluntary subscription. Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose an amount to keep us going all year round. You can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.